my grandmother was the hippest woman alive. She would have fit in at the coolest cocktail bar in any town. Her drink of choice was the whiskey highball, which is having its heyday right now. Oh, but not any whiskey would do. There was only one, and it had to be Dewar's. As you can imagine, my guest today loved that story. Why? Because he is Global Brand Ambassador. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Needless to say, Fraser Campbell holds my grandmother in high regard, as well as every other Dewar's whiskey drinker. He's on a mission to bring people into whiskey while they're having fun. Who doesn't want to head down to the beach with some whiskey pina coladas right now? I know I do. How Fraser is completing his mission can be found on today's program. But before that, I wanted to tell you about an event that is coming up to benefit the Drinks Trust, which has provided care and support to the drinks industry since 1886. On Tuesday, December 1st from 6 to 7.30 UK time on Zoom, they're having a holiday cocktail party run by David Wood from Liana Cocktail Company. Their interactive cocktail experience contains three handmade classic cocktails using exceptional spirit producers from around the world. You can find out more on alushlifemanual.com. Now, on to Fraser. I am so excited to have you on the show because my grandmother's favorite cocktail was a Dewar's and Soda. Literally, that's all she ordered. I remember that. So to have the global brand ambassador of Dewar's on my show is like, I know she's either watching me from above or below, which I'm sure they're having a lot more fun down there. And and she is just so thrilled right now at this moment. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Susan. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. And obviously, needless to say, your grandmother had amazing taste in uh, whiskey and drinks. Yes, she did. Now, we always start at the beginning, so I want to know everything about you. Yes, how I fell into whiskey, ultimately. So I grew up in Speyside, uh, in the northeast of Scotland. And basically, in, in a roundabout way, you know, I started working in bars when I was 18 years old to try and keep me out of trouble, which I think in the long term didn't really work out. It definitely got me into more trouble in good ways, obviously. But I was working in a pub in my hometown of Forest which is, you know, next to some amazing distilleries, places like, you know, Ben Romick, Dallas Dew Distillery, Craig Ellicke, which is one of our distilleries at John Duran Sons. And over the years when I started studying, I still kept bartending on the side and kind of leaned towards that more than actually going to classes. I did get a degree in the end in English and film studies, but I definitely sort of stuck with bars and hospitality. So I ended up doing that for the next sort of 15 years, taking me to, you know, running some amazing bars in Edinburgh, then moving out. Wait, to wait, wait, wait! You're going way too quickly. Now, okay. <laughs> did you always were thinking bars? What, yeah. what, what else was on the horizon? Did you grow up drinking, uh, you know, whiskey, all that stuff? Yeah. Look, I mean, um, growing up in space, I, you know, being surrounded by, you know, like thirty to forty different distilleries, it's inevitable that at a very young age you can have various encounters, you know, with one of our, our finest exports. So I went to my first distillery when I was about seven years old. I very distinctly remember the smell of the wash back when I stuck my head in and got uh, my head blown off by the CO2 emissions. 
you know, that really what, 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 what was that? You were going to a distillery when you were... Yeah, yeah. Like, so, you know, you can go around a distillery at any age, really. I've taken my nephew around, he's four years old, you know, to see how all the whiskey's made throughout fermentation and distillation. So when we get to the fermentation stage of making whiskey, that's where a lot of these flavors and esters start getting created for the first time. And obviously, when when you've got barley, you know, mixed with sugar and, and water, and obviously you start getting fermentation... You know, CO2 is a, a large emission. You know, when you stick your head into the washbacks where we do the fermentation, you really get a sense of it. So I did that when I was about seven years old. And that obviously stuck, stuck with me for a very long time. I can still remember that sensation and that smell today. You know, but but obviously my first proper encounter with whiskey many, many, many years later when I, of course, was of legal drinking age. You know, my first, first experience with whiskey probably wasn't the best one. You know, and I think like a lot of people... Sadly, like when you encounter a scotch or whiskey for the first time, if your experience is not a good one, that experience might stay with you and unfortunately sort of tarnish um, that notion of coming back to whiskey. So it actually took me a long time to fall in love with with scotch whiskey, believe it or not. I sort of had to travel to the ends of the earth to to basically get homesick enough that having a whiskey would take me back to Scotland. <laughs> well, why was your first experience with whiskey bad other than falling in it? Um you know, I, th- I think when, you know, I think we've all had that experience when we're younger, whether it's whiskey, tequila, gin, rum, vodka, it doesn't matter what it is. But if your first experience is basically hugging a toilet for the next 12 hours, naturally, uh-huh. you're not going to really uh, fall in love with that spirit. And also at a very young age as well, like your mouth and your your taste buds, your sense of smell is not equipped to deal with something like that. It takes years of practicing to appreciate mm-hmm. that, to really enjoy it. And so... Like a lot of people, they treat whiskey as a shot or a shooter when they're younger, like when they're at university, and people actually sort of bypass the best part of the whiskey, which is the aromas and the flavors, and just use it as a mechanism for having an amazing time, or in some cases, not so much the next day. So, you know, a a large part of what I do now is, you know, as Global Ambassador for Jurors is showing people how to appreciate whiskey and enjoy it for the first time in a lot of different ways, whether that's neat or in a cocktail or you know, in the case of your grandmother having a whiskey and soda or a highball, as we call it, for the first time and helping them fall in love with whiskey. Yes, we will definitely get to all of that and what you do at Doers. But back to you. So why do you think bartending took you away from any of the studies that you were doing? What was it about it that really drew you in and wanted you to pursue it as a career? I think I've probably always naturally sort of had an affinity just towards socializing and and hanging out with people and i think you know bartending was just basically a way of doing that and getting paid for it so you're basically on the side of studying you know you had the time to go in the evenings and you know be in the bar and be in that environment and actually you know you know making money from it so why wouldn't you do it right and then obviously at that time when i started bartending you know sort of circa you know 2000 i had no aspirations to do it as a long-term career you know because at that time this industry and industries we know it now didn't really exist like it was all just bubbling it was just starting to get going with bars like milk and honey opening in new york and the cocktail making a comeback the internet obviously playing a massive part and all that too so i just bartended because i enjoyed it and i never while i was studying thought this is what i'm going to do for the rest of my days but obviously i think the great thing about bartending is you can sort of take it with you anywhere and when you move to a new city, which I've done quite a lot in the past 20 years, it's such a good way just to get into the community and meet people, whether it's other bartenders or, you know, the regulars that come in. 
And and is that what you thought when you started? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm bartending now, but I want to go someplace else and travel. And I'm going to work there while I travel. Yeah, I think I think when I was in Aberdeen, I definitely had a, a yen to go to Australia at some stage. I think I'd met quite a few Australians when I was working there, and we definitely got on. I think their sort of passion for socializing and alcohol was probably pretty similar to the Scots in that sense. So I struck a chord with some Aussies and ended up going, you know, several years later. But in between that, I, you know, the key thing for me, I think, was moving to Edinburgh because I moved to Edinburgh when I finished uni to then start looking for jobs. Like obviously at that stage, I was still sort of being pressured by my mom, as I imagine many people in the industry have been to say, when are you going to get a real job? That question, which we all love to hear, or what is it you actually do? What are you studying? I was always big into cinema and film, and I always envisioned that's where I'd sort of end up, which never transpired. But luckily, you know, nowadays in the, in the wonderful world we exist in, you can do lots of cool video projects. So I think in a roundabout way, you can still draw that passion in. But uh, no, I was I was applying for all manner of jobs when I moved to Edinburgh. I was like sales jobs and you know just anything with a salary. And then I was working in a really fun little cocktail bar called Candy Bar in Edinburgh, which was just it was a basically a party bar, you know. And we were making French martinis, raspberry mojitos, B fifty twos. Like this is very much off the back of the nineties bartending scene. But it was so much fun and just meeting everyone and the first time really getting a sense of this bar community, this like town full of bartenders where everyone knows each other, cocktail competitions, like getting involved in those and just really vibing off other people and the passion and the creativity was there. So it's just like, you know, this is kind of fun. And I think, again, like I hadn't thought this is what I'm going to do. But when I when I then started traveling after, you know, a couple of years in Edinburgh, I went to Australia. Again, very easy to take with you. You land, you get a bar job. And again, just getting into the scene is such a good way to to integrate yourself quickly. Was it a one-way ticket to Australia? <laughs> well, the first one wasn't, but yeah, the second one was. Um, <laughs> I went out for I went out for a wedding. I met again, I met some amazing Aussies when I was working in Edinburgh. I was working with one of them actually and made friends with them and they invited me out to their wedding. So I said, you know, why the hell not? This is the way to do it. So I, I booked a year's uh, working visa. Flew down to Sydney, worked there for uh, six months in a couple of different bars. And then I moved down to Melbourne for the remaining six months, which is there. I, you know, I totally fell in love with Melbourne. I don't know what it was, but it was like amazing coffee and restaurants and bars, like laneway culture, like Melbourne. I just, I totally fell in love. So after six months, you had to go back home because my visa was up, but I got back to Scotland feeling there's something unfinished business. I don't know if maybe it's the right term, but I had to go back and find out. So I basically just worked for four months and managed to secure a second visa to go back. And I then stayed for another four years. <laughs> and I think you're minimizing what you did while you were there because you came up with this brilliant idea for the Global Bartender Exchange. Yeah. So I think when I landed in Sydney, I probably, you know, you find yourself trying to figure out where all the cool bars are, you know, and obviously you might know someone who can give you a few recommendations to like drop off CVs and you're like running around the city. And obviously it's a great way to get to know the place by going into all the bars to do that. I think when I was in Melbourne, when I came back the second time, I was running a cocktail bar called The Alchemist in Fitzroy, which is this kind of cool little hipster kind of neighborhood, some really cool bars there like Black Pearl. So I was running this cocktail bar and yeah, I think maybe like a year, a year and a half in, like one weekend, I don't know what happened, but we had had like no bartenders. There was like sudden drought 
And I kind of reached out to a few people and it's almost like there was just a lack of really good bartenders around that time. Everyone was sort of feeling the same way. So I just basically created a Facebook group called the Melbourne Bartender Exchange, added like, you know, uh, a couple of hundred of people people I'd met in Melbourne, all the bar managers and bartenders and brand masters, and just said, look, hey guys, I know everyone's sort of struggling for finding staff to work at weekends. So if anyone lands in the city or, you know, you know of anyone, just put it on the page here and we can use it and uh, as a little resource. And then sure enough, people started using the page more frequently. It became a sort of a source of banter. You people putting up bartender memes, people complaining about the price of limes, you know, arguing about how to garnish in old fashioned. Is it a cherry? Is it not a cherry? Speaking so, out. Right, cocktail Yeah, and obviously, like that hasn't changed. I mean, you know, even before Facebook, you know, we were using bartender forums. You know, the proper old school internet bartender forums. You know, like create topic. You know, and threads and all that kind of stuff. So I think Facebook, like using the groups, was just a way to to get everyone online and create this little hub. And it grew really quickly. It was like you know a couple hundred members. Then it was a thousand. Then it was five thousand. And it like the reason the group was getting so big was because people were landing from overseas trying to find work and coming on the group to find jobs. And, so, and it was global, I assume. This is global. Well, well it wasn't at that stage. We yeah. had the Melbourne page, but then I was working with my one of my best friends, Hannah Curl, who worked with me in The Alchemist. And then we had this idea to take this idea and actually turn it into a global network of different bartender exchanges in different cities. So I think one day we just we just kind of did it. We just set up like 200 different Facebook groups in different cities around the world. And sort of, you know, in some cities we knew people already who would be really good to sort of help run the groups like in a sort of admin, you know, capacity. So we did that quite quickly. And, and some of the groups grew really fast and really quick and some of them didn't. But, you know, we just, it was like, you know, we connected to like London and Edinburgh and Dublin and like the US and New Zealand and, it suddenly became this thing where you could basically use the groups to sort of find your next move. Or if you knew you were moving to, you know, from Melbourne to Auckland, you could use it to line up your next job or a place to live in advance. So yeah, the groups grew. We ended up having, a, I think, about 150,000 members in total in all the groups. That's and then, a full-time job. It was actually a full-time And we also invested in it as well. Like We took some money and we tried to build like an app which didn't really work out the way we planned. The first one we launched was terrible and didn't work properly and the design wasn't great. So we redesigned it and we relaunched it and it was a very expensive learning lesson. Uh, but we were so invested in, you know, like when you have an idea and you you fully believe in it, you're just like, yeah, look, I don't care. I'm just going to go nuts and, and go all in. So yeah, that kind of started in 2011. Yeah, so that's what, nine years ago? I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the groups are still going guns. I mean, the, the Melbourne page has now 70,000 members. <gasps> It's, I would imagine it would be hard to be seen. Like you come in and say, hi, I'm new here. And you, yeah. it's, like, it's hard to, to get it to was, the top. It was a bit like, it was a bit like, you know, it's like babysitting online several thousand bartenders who sometimes like knocked off a shift and had a few drinks and decide they want to have a bit of a, a debate online. You know, and, and sometimes actually like, you know, the groups would get out of control quite quickly. There'd be a lot of threads and like, you know, all sorts of stuff happening. But you know, we we sort of tried our best to keep the forums fair and objective and kick out people who were being out of line about anything, any topics. And were you topics. getting, I, I know you're probably going to be modest about this, but are you, were you getting more and more known as the person who put this together or the two of you, you and your friend Hannah? Like, did people recognize that you, it was you who started it all? 
Yeah, I mean, I yeah, we definitely were but like the you know the face. I mean, it was it was only really the two of us initially, and then we we had some amazing people come on board to help us run the groups. You know, because basically at one stage, you know, I me and Hannah both left Australia, so I'd moved to Barcelona and Hannah had moved to China, and uh, so we needed someone on the ground to help us sort of run things and you know have have someone who was really well known. So we actually had in Melbourne we had Alex Ross, who's the sister of Sam Ross, who created the penicillin. Yeah. Alex was running the Melbourne group for us for many years and she was great and did an amazing job. She was well known and loved in the scene. So we kind of had that strategy of with the different groups because it was so much work. We had to find people who could help us to to run the different pages in the different cities. So, but yeah, I mean, of course, like we, you know, we had a central Facebook group, which um, we used for the sort of central discussions. And, you know, when we kicked it off, we sort of purposefully, you know, invited some big hitters in the industry to help sort of get the conversations going and things like that. So, yeah, look, I think that doing it, it didn't really work out the way I planned and it definitely blew up, you know, much larger than I think we thought it was going to get. But, you know, investing in that website and everything else is like, you know, it may, it may, have, may have paid off at the time and it might not have worked the way we wanted to, but it kind of creates a stepping stone to the next thing you're going to do. And I heard you say Barcelona. Yeah. So when did you think it was time to leave Australia? When you Well, I I didn't really decide. I think, it, I, think it, over. I think the Department of Immigration decided it was my time to oh, leave. No. Um, oh, no. So I mean I look four and a half years or five years was a pretty good time. And um I'll always have very fond memories of being in Melbourne and Australia, but it's it was definitely my time to leave, despite my trying to stay as much as possible. So you know, obviously not wanting to go straight back to the UK took a little stop off in Spain for about two and a half years to Barcelona. And what was it like there after being in Melbourne? It was great. I mean, it was so different. But obviously, I think for me personally, I don't know if I was born in the wrong country, but I obviously liked the warm weather. So that was definitely a bonus. Barcelona is amazing. Like it's such, you know, a beautiful city. It's got all the culture, all the Gaudi art, you know, the architecture. It's also insanely cheap to live there as well. You know, my rent was like 150 euros a month, which is basically nothing. So you, you could basically have, a, you could work a lot less, I found in Barcelona. You could work, you know, two or three nights a week and subsidize your living quite well and just have a really sort of good quality of life. Like had loads of time to go down the beach or I was doing, I was also doing as well as running the GB, doing graphic design and a few other little bits and pieces as well, you know, having time to play guitar and all that kind of stuff. So Barcelona was almost a bit like, yeah, taking a step back and having a bit of break because I was obviously running cocktail bars. So when I got to Barcelona, I just went back to bartending just to enjoy, you know, not running a bar because I think having the responsibility of doing all that stuff online, I just wanted to have a job where I didn't have as much responsibility just to have a bit of a break. Was it a little bit more mellow, like your punters, but did, did they drink different kinds of things? Were you exploring different um, ingredients while you were there? Did you see a difference? I think Spanish people and well, Catalan people as well, bear in mind there's two cultures there in uh, Barcelona. The the drinking culture was much simpler. I think Melbourne was way more advanced in terms of the cocktail scene. And I think Barcelona was very much still about like things like mojitos and caipirinhas and like there's obviously like the beach there as well, you know. So, but you know, certain drinks I came across, like which I fell in love with, which I, you know, might not have seen elsewhere, like the Michelada, for example. I'd never really encountered the Michelada in Melbourne or anywhere else. When I got to Barcelona, on a Sunday, that's all people drank. Like I used to work in this really cool little cocktail bar called Betty Ford's, which did like burgers and cocktails. And 
on a Sunday, people come down for a burger and a michelada, and like I was just like, this drink is great. You know, it's literally just a, a bloody mary with beer, but it's so good. You know, and that's something I hadn't really seen popularized elsewhere. The gin and tonic was obviously massive at the time as well. The whole you know crazy you know seventeen mm-hmm. garnishes in your gin and tonic was really taking off. And you know the thing in the thing in Barcelona is like you know people there love to drink and they love to party, but everyone's so chilled. Like it's I think you get a lot in Europe, you know, versus places like the UK or you know. Australia like people tend to drink but they can hold their drink like that you don't see them like passing out in the street right you know what I mean they just have yeah. have a have a very good know, like relationship with old alcohol. world old world drinking as opposed yeah. to new world drinking and also it could be to do with the fact that they you know they don't have dinner till like 10 o'clock at night so they yeah. probably you know they go out eat later so their stomach's still full so when they're drinking they can hold their drink whereas I think what happens in the UK is people knock off from work at five and go straight to the pub skip dinner and they're oh, fit. I forgot they're, uh, old world right drunk by 10 o'clock yeah so you're in Spain when did doers come calling oh so yeah about you know two and a half years in to Barcelona I got a message one day off of Jacob Briars who is our head of global advocacy at Bacardi who had known for probably um about 10 years before that, he dropped me a message one day, you know, saying, look, we're on the lookout for a new global ambassador for Jurors. You happen to be Scottish. You know, you like a whiskey. Obviously, I've repaired my relationship with whiskey by this time. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Repairing yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that obviously happened in Australia. Um, used to go to some amazing whiskey bars after work, like Whiskey and Ailment. And I think it was called Shea Regine at the time. And have like a beer and a whiskey after work. So that's where the, the repairing of that relationship happened. So by the time I got to Spain, that was fine. So Jacob message going, you know, we're looking for a new global ambassador, you know, travel the world talking about jurors. And it's quite funny because I'd been approached about a few ambassador roles before and I'd kind of like, you know, thought, I don't really really keen to do it, you know. And I think when the jurors role came up, I didn't know a lot about jurors, despite growing up in Scotland, because historically jurors was more present in export countries like Latin America and the US. But I had actually worked with it in Australia. When I was running The Alchemist, it was actually in our speed rail. It was our house pour whiskey. So I'd worked with it a lot. I'd made a lot of drinks with it. So I knew the flavor. I just hadn't looked at the backstory. And when I started researching and reading into the history of Jurors, I was totally blown away by all these stories of Tommy Durer and how the brand came to be a globally iconic Scotch whiskey brand. So naturally, it took me less than you know a few minutes to make my mind up about taking the role. <laughs> now, since you brought him up, you know, everything I read about you says that you're a 21st century Tommy Doer. And so what is a little bit of the history and why did you fall in love with that? So, I mean, obviously, if you look at all the sort of major, you know, Scotch whiskey brands, everyone, you know, everyone started off in very similar cir- circumstances, which is that, you know, there's probably a shop where the original founder had set up, you know, was selling whiskeys and wines and spirits, tea and other stuff as well. It's either going to be a wine and spirit merchant or a grocer. And so I think the John Dura story, you know, he very much was like a family man. He was passionate about Scotch and really pushed it and made a really good name for himself in Scotland. But I think Tommy Dura is the, the really interesting sort of character in the story because he was the sort of youngest of 10 children who came on board um, and took jurors around the world like he you know he literally he was like the first global ambassador as well he traveled the world for two years non-stop going to 26 different countries popularizing jurors everywhere he went he had an amazing relationship with the media so you know so whenever you know something came up you know for example we actually pioneered the highball like the actual drink tommy Dure pioneered that term so 
Yeah. I have no idea now. Yeah. Yeah. So like when Tommy Drew was on his travels, he stopped in New York for, you know, he was out in New York one, one night with some friends. They went to a bar and he ordered some balls, some balls of whiskey because ball was an old sort of Irish term for glass of whiskey, a ball of malt. So he said, can we get some balls of whiskey? And then when the bartender turned up and he looked at the glasses, he, he actually went, well, let's have, let's put some soda and ice in there and put in a tall glass and we'll have a highball. Because at that time, the, the whiskey and soda was really taking off because, you know, in the early 1800s, people were drinking cognac or brandy and soda. But when phylloxera happened and, you know, pretty much took cognac and, and grape spirits off the map, mm-hmm. scotch, you know, which was massively taking off from the sort of 1860s onwards, really sort of stepped in. So Tommy decided to pioneer this drink, this term highball as a means of, you know, enjoying whiskey and soda together. So, so you know, that that's obviously been a story which had a lot of fun with over the past few years, bringing that to life. And so obviously using my, <laughs> my bartender background, a large part of what I do is developing different highballs for each of our whiskeys that we have. And obviously doing, you know, different events and, and showcasing the highball as a, as a really great way for people to start off on their whiskey journey or, you know, enjoy the whiskey in, in different ways with different flavors. So I have to thank Tommy, I guess, because my grandmother would probably not be drinking it had he not come over, created a highball. She didn't even know she was drinking a highball, but she was, you know, and thus whiskey and soda you know, doers and soda. There we go. So you brought up what you're doing as a global brand ambassador going around the world. Have you had any surprises where people have been drinking doers in a way that you had no idea that they would drink it or different cocktails that you thought, oh my God, why, you know, I wish I had thought of that. I think one of my standout memories, I mean, I wasn't surprised about this. In fact, I actually asked for the drink, but one of my favorite memories was I was traveling around Latin America because places like Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic are really popular uh, markets for jurors. So when I was there, one of my first trips, I'd been down at the beach. Uh, we'd been touring around, you know, I'd been sort of jumping into different bars to make, you know, different lives, doing whiskey pina coladas and things like that. And people were like, what? And then one of the bars we stopped at, Towards the end, I said, look, I just want to have a whiskey and a Jura's and coconut water. So the bartender, she basically went no problem. So she went and got like a whole coconut and then pulled out a machete, at which point I was like, I feel like I'm back in Glasgow or something like this. And she held the coconut, sort of spinning it in the palm of her hand while chopping the lid and, you know, very, very cleanly just pulled the lid off. She poured out some of the coconut water, put in loads of ice and a massive, you know, pouring of Jura's 12 and just handed me the coconut and honestly in that point in time I was like this is perfection because it was like you know super hot it was like 40 degrees um I was down at the beach and I just had this coconut filled with whiskey and coconut water and ice and I was like this is this is beautiful so when we launched our Jura's rum cask Caribbean smooth which is our eight-year-old blend finished in Caribbean rum casks last year I thought this is what this is the drink I want to bring to life with the whiskey. So I played around with it and, you know, just thought, well, this is very simple. Do, you know, double measure of Caribbean smooth with some coconut water and ice done. But for some reason, when, you know, I gave it to some people, I found that like people were very sort of split on coconut water as a way to enjoy whiskey. And like in Latin America, it's huge. Like people love it. And maybe it is sort of endemic to that sort of particular country and your personal preferences. So, you know, getting this feedback, I was like, okay, well, I need to keep the coconut flavor, but sort of, you know, make it maybe stick to what Tommy Drew originally did, which is having that fizz and that effervescence, which actually makes it a highball. 
you know, you know, highball is effectively spirit with like a, a you know fizzy mixer. So I thought, right, well, I'll take the soda and then to get the coconut flavor, I'll just use some concentrated coconut syrup. So use the monin syrup and then obviously some lemon juice to balance out the the sweet and sour. And that was it, you know, and just a very simple recipe. But then like it just, yeah, that landed and people loved it. So again, like you can have an idea, but you just need to maybe tweak it slightly to your audience. And and I think one of the biggest challenges is creating highballs and drinks that you know need to be replicated and made in all these different countries that we sell jurors in, which is quite challenging. I think of just doers as doers and soda because of my grandmother. Have you been making new products all these years? I mean, what what expressions, at least maybe since you've been there, have they created? So I think I think the big year for us was definitely 2019. So I, I joined around 2016 and we'd had a few you know, we were talking about innovation all the time and we had all these different ideas. And then, you know, finally we sort of focused on creating something a little bit new and a little bit different. And we wanted to really get something that was super premium because we didn't have anything, you know, in the sort of really high end age statements. So we wanted to create a range of older whiskeys that had gone through a very specific process using the Jura's heritage and the sort of backstory. So what Jura's is known for as a whiskey is double aging, which is this process of taking all these different whiskeys from around Scotland. So, you know, so most of our blends, we use up to 40 different single malts, the heart malt of which is Aberfeldy, a beautiful, rich and honeyed single malt. So historically, our first master blender, AJ Cameron, had done this marrying process where he was vatting whiskeys from different regions. Like, So he would take all the really peated whiskeys from Ireland, marry them together to sort of create a bit more unity and cohesion between all the different whiskeys. You know, it's it's much like cooking, right? You know, sometimes you make an amazing dish, but it sometimes tastes better after three days, you know, sitting in the fridge. Absolutely. The flavors have had a chance to get to know each other. So so Stephanie McLeod, who's our amazing master blender, she took this idea of AJ Cameron's marrying and, and created a four-stage aging process, the first of which is maturing your single malt and grain whiskeys to the right age statement. And then the second stage is marrying the single malts and marrying the grain whiskey separately. And the third stage is bringing those together and marrying all those whiskeys. And the fourth stage is then putting that into different sherry casks. So that's Ooh. sort of the four stages of, of bringing the whiskey to life. The sherry giving a very unique finish and flavor profile as well. So dub, that, that's the Jura's Double Double series, which we launched. And honestly, the I think the reaction to the liquid and the whiskey... And even things like the, the packaging, we've got these beautiful square bottles and the packaging is white. It looks like more like an iPhone case than a whiskey box, you know. It was a really sort of a big step forward for Jurors and I think really reframed what people thought about blended scotch because, you know, over the past 60 years since single malts have become really popular, blended scotches tend to be perceived in somewhat of a lesser way, yeah. you know, whether it's a price comparison or, you know, the fact that it's not coming from one distillery but it's blended together in central Scotland you know, blends are really important to the world of whiskey. It's like 90% of the export of the Scotch whiskey industry. But also, you know, the way that people think about whiskey, I think is that, you know, the more rare and unique it is, it's more valuable and it's, you know, you can go to the distillery and see how it's made. So Double Double helped us bring focus back to blends saying, actually, yeah. blended Scotches can be really unique and complex and interesting and have all these, you know, different layers going on. So we, you know, actually the, this year was pretty amazing because our double double thirty two, which is our oldest of the three, finished in Pedro Jimenez casks. 
won the award for you know the the world's best whiskey at the international whiskey competition so that was pretty amazing yeah and you know i do think i agree with you about the snob value of you know single malts and i you know you can't get better than winning that award you know must have been like look guys you single malt guys we can do it too we can do it too yeah and and of course like you know the you know stephanie as well as being our master blender for jurors is also our malt master for our five single malts as well. So she has such an amazing experience and she obviously takes that experience from doing both and can interchange experiments with different casks using her knowledge to to create some really amazing whiskies. You know, so following Double Double, we launched our eight-year-old cask series because we had almost a gap between Jure's White Label, which is our you know biggest selling blend. We've had that since 1899. And we had our 12-year-old Jure's. So in between there, we wanted to create an expression which is really appealing to a different audience and recruiting a lot of new whiskey drinkers for the first time with different cask finishes. So we've done the rum cask with Caribbean Smooth. The next one, which is really massive for us, was we actually partnered with Illegal Mezcal, who are based out in the US, and they gave us some of their Reposado Mezcal casks. So we did the the world's first scotch finished in Mezcal casks. So does that come out of smoky? I mean, what is the, you know... It's it's got it's kind you know, of twist on a PD. It no, it's it's not peated like Scotch. So with mezcal, I think what you get from it, which is really interesting, you don't see a lot in Scotch, is this kind of this sort of earthy vegetal sort of note. It's got like notes of like green peppers that have been charred. Uh-huh. If you can imagine like a barbecued green pepper, that kind of thing. And there is a subtle sort of smoke that comes through at the end. But that for me is what made it really interesting. And I think that you know, you know, having a lot of chats with the mezcal, the legal mezcal team is like, you know, they're they're trying to, you know, really work to help this perception of mezcal, not just as like a smoky tequila, but as a really interesting agave spirit and the way it's made, the way it's produced and its uniqueness. So, you know, the great thing about you doing that experiment was getting these mezcal casks and just seeing for the first time how the scotch and the mezcal sort of played off each other. And it's it's super, super interesting and also amazing for making drinks as well, for making different highballs and cocktails. I, I actually like whiskey and a Bloody Mary. So that sounds like it could go really well. well yeah. Pepper. Like, going back to the Micheladas, might have to try one yeah. there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, that's even, even just having it with a beer on the side, you know, like during the summer when it, I remember one day it was really hot, I poured like a, a little dram of. Uh, the illegal smooth and had like a little Modelo Mexican beer on the side, you know, and that was perfect, you know, just for that day, a little sort of how we say in Scotland, when we have a beer and a whiskey, we call it a half and half. I think, you know, in the U S traditionally known as a boiler maker, you know, but beer and whiskey pairings is also an amazing way to, to explore whiskey's flavors and find some great pairings. And obviously with the highball, we're looking a lot at food pairings at the moment too. So it's, it's a fun time to be working in whiskey. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like it. And are you allowed to reveal anything that you're doing for the future? We got obviously more of our eight-year-old cask series coming out very soon. We've got a new one coming out in January in the US. So obviously you'll have to keep your eyes peeled about that. But yeah, obviously that's going to be you know a big focus. We've got some amazing innovations coming up, like really excited to showcase them when they land. You know, I do. I do think that innovation has really been key for us in helping reframe the opinion of not just obviously Juris as a brand, but of Scotch whiskey as well. Well, I can't wait to come back in January and find out what you're doing. Absolutely. So maybe you will come back and tell us. 
Absolutely. I will not be going anywhere, especially in the current climate. <laughs> no, we're going to forget about that. Yeah. yeah. It's all going to change next year and it's going to be yeah, the yeah. roaring 20s. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just hope prohibition doesn't come with that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely that. No, it's not going to happen. So yeah. then we'll see you then. So thank you so much for being on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. You know I couldn't leave Fraser without asking for his top tips for the home bartender and where he would have a drink right now if he could choose anywhere in the world. I think that a lot of people might be inclined just to go out and buy every spirit and every liqueur and loads of bitters. But I'd be like, look, if you know you have four or five drinks which you love, just start off with the ingredients for those. Because, you know, even in my kitchen, I've got like, you know, you know, 20, 25 bottles in the kitchen of different liqueurs and stuff, which, you know, sometimes I don't even use. I just have them just in case because obviously I do a lot of drinks R&D at home for with work. But uh, yeah, look, if you know you love Negronis and you like martinis, you know, and you love, you know, margaritas and, you know, just so pick a few gins, pick a few tequilas. And obviously, you know, if you love highballs, hopefully you'll have some jurors in there as well. But yeah, like, you know, and then pick a few like vermouth, vermouths and things like sherries and, you know, some other choice liqueurs as well, like San Germain, Elderflower liqueur goes in absolutely everything. Martini vermouth, you know, definitely pick some really nice base spirits. You know, you're going to use some modifiers or liqueurs and some bitters, but uh, you know, don't go crazy. You can always build on top of that collection as you go. That sounds great. And if you could be drinking anywhere right now, where would that be? Oh, yeah. I think right at this point in time, especially as the cold weather is kicking in here in London, I would definitely be back at Puerto Rico on the beach drinking my Jura's and coconut out of the coconut shell. Oh, that sounds good. I could be there too. (laughs) Yeah. I want to thank Fraser for being on the show and Doers for sponsoring the transcript of this podcast. You can find a link to it on my homepage, alushlifemanual.com. Now, all this talk about Puerto Rico and coconuts has left me thirsty and ready for our cocktail of the week. After describing his coconut highball as tangy, tropical, sweet, and refreshing, I had to have it as our cocktail of the week. Start by adding 50 mils of Dewar's Caribbean Smooth, which is Dewar's finished in X rum casks. Yum! Then 20 mils of lemon juice, and finally 20 mils of coconut syrup to a chilled highball glass filled with ice. Then top it up with 100 mils of soda water and stir carefully. Then garnish with a lemon wheel and slapped mint sprig. This cocktail will make you think you have sand between your toes and sun on your face. You'll find this recipe, plus more whiskey recipes and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find all the ingredients in our shop. So, as I told you, my grandmother would always order a Dewar's and Soda, while my grandfather always ordered a whiskey sour. Oh, the poor server who would invariably hand her the whiskey sour and my grandfather the scotch and soda. She would rip him apart. If you live for Lush Life, make sure you're giving back to the bars you love by donating or taking part in cocktail delivery where you live. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. 
And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly and wash your hands and wear a mask. Next week, we meet one of the most famous people in cocktails. I'm not keeping it a secret. It's David Wandrich, the man who wrote Imbibe, Punch, and so much more, as well as being my hero. Until that time, bottoms up.